Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Sports Podcast. This is Bob D'Angelo, and I'm a longtime sports journalist now working on my master's degree in history at Southern New Hampshire University. Today, we'll be speaking with Sridhar Papu, author of the book, The Year of the Pitcher, Bob Gibson, Denny McLean, and the End of Baseball's Golden Age. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Sridhar is the male animal columnist of the New York Times. And he began his writing career as a feature writer for the Chicago Reader. And since then, he's been a columnist for the New York Observer, correspondent for the Atlantic Magazine, and a staff writer for the Washington Post and Sports Illustrated. He currently lives and works in Brooklyn, New York. Um, Schreeder, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, your educational background and how you got started in writing. It was sort of by accident, actually. I had gone to Northwestern not as a journalism major, which shocks a lot of people, and uh, as a philosophy major which is what my father was, and he uh, taught philosophy for almost 50 years uh, uh, on the university level. And I decided one day to take a journalism weed-out course uh, for non-majors, discovered I was good at it, and uh, the next thing I know, <laughs> um, I'm uh, at my very first internship at the Washington City Paper, edited by uh, the late David Carr, and uh, working with a tremendous staff and uh, deciding that was what was, I was going to do with the rest of my life. Um, I had the great fortune of studying under some great teachers, including uh, Tracy Kidder, um, the Pulitzer Prize winner, and Richard Ford. Uh, and um, uh, before I began my uh, my real professional career, and uh, which, as, as you said, uh, began with the reader and continued on. What was it about? What was it about writing that really intrigued you and attracted you? Well, I mean, it's, it seems uh, sort of silly, but uh, I guess, you know, the ability to to rewrite is what uh, fascinated me at first. I mean, very, uh, uh, you know, there's there aren't very many opportunities in life where you can actually redo or go back um, and, and correct mistakes. <laughs> and so... Um, you know, in terms, especially in terms of long form writing, being able to restructure stuff, being able to, the, the actual form, um, which I, I, I still take great pleasure in of looking at and dissecting it, both my, my own work and other people's work, of being able to go back and, uh, and make yourself better. And the idea of constantly, uh, of th- this is something that you can constantly make yourself better at as the years go on, you know, um, there are very few professions like that um, where you're always striving to get better and actually can get better um, if you're willing to put in the work. And this, uh, this, uh, this is what appealed to me the most. And speaking of going back, I mean, it's been 50 years since the year of the pitcher. Um, what did you find so fascinating about 1968 as a baseball season and as a year in general? Well, I kind of feel as baseball fans, you sort of pick up the, the history of the game almost by osmosis. And so when it came time for me to write a book um, that involved baseball, involved sports, 
this automatically popped in my mind. Uh, you know, when you think about that year, I mean, uh, you, you can't help but mention those two names, Bob Gibson and Denny McLean. And the numbers just go, just pop out of people's heads. Uh, 31 games for uh, McLean, uh, 1.12 for Gibson. Now, I'll say as an American history, uh, uh, I wouldn't say aficionado, but someone who, who loves American history and who's studied a great deal. I mean, 1968 obviously was one of the most turbulent, if not the most turbulent years in, uh, in the history of our republic. And so to, to, uh, to write about the national game in that context uh, great, greatly appealed to me. What I found interesting was, though, that instead of a narrative where uh, I thought I would find a game putting a country at ease or, or even being completely intertwined in it, I found a game uh, almost at arm's length and unable to cope with the changes uh, that were going on. And that actually became one of the themes of my book. Uh, and, and, and a real, I wouldn't call it a, um, a soul-searching moment, but it definitely sort of broke down uh, a lot of the mythology that the game itself has uh, created around itself. Yeah, one line I really uh, liked from your book was when you said that um, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the bold America that emerged from World War II was on the verge of cannibalizing itself from within. And uh, what exactly did you mean by that? Well, I mean, from all angles, from uh, not only did you have uh, uh, racial strife uh, going on uh, within the cities and uh, uh, between uh, blacks and, and, and whites and so on, but you, you had a younger generation versus an older generation, um, uh, you know, uh, completely at, at odds with one another. And, you know, and, and, and more to the point, you had uh, young men going off to war, and uh, often one in which they didn't want to fight, yet felt dis disrespected by those who were trying to sort of keep them at home. And what it created for was a nation just, you know, honestly tearing itself apart. And, um, you know, what, what, it, what, it, what it happened after uh, the Second World War and the prosperity that, uh, that flourished uh, and the relative calm that, you know, that it provided for, I mean, I wouldn't say for um, all Americans, but uh, definitely by this point uh, had completely sort of uh, fallen apart. Right. We went from the uh, greatest generation to the baby boomers, and the uh, baby boomers wanted no part of uh, a war across the, uh, the the Pacific. Oh, uh, I mean, I mean, certainly not. I mean, well, especially as the war uh, uh, progressed. And and I, I think what you ultimately found was, you know, people questioning, you know, what, what it was to be American, what it was to be patriotic, what it, uh, I mean, these are the same kind of issues we're, we're seeing today, although... Uh, in 1968, we saw it on a much grander scale. Now, with all this p political and social turmoil going on, how was how was baseball viewed by the American public in 1968? I think it was definitely at a crossroads because, on one hand, it was still the national game, and uh, we, you were coming off 1967 and um, one of the greatest uh, pennant races, if not the greatest pennant races in baseball's history, with four teams vying for the pennant going into the last weekend um, of the season. At the same time, uh, with the rise of television, 
football had emerged really as America's sport, uh, whether baseball wanted to admit it or not. And uh, there's a great cartoon that was uh, printed in the New Yorker and then in Newsweek of uh, a young man and his father uh, uh, standing uh, uh, next to one another. And the man uh, uh, wants to throw a game of catch with his son. And the son says, oh, I don't want to throw the old pill around uh, uh, dad or something to that extent. And baseball was looked like uh, as old fashioned and football was uh, the sport of the future. And I mean, we have to remember that even though the 1969 uh, Super Bowl in which uh, Joe Namath completely revolutionized uh, the sport, um, uh, Super Bowl three, you know, happened only a few months later, what what was building up to that was happening uh, in, uh, in 1968 and uh, baseball didn't know what was coming. It was kind of a myth that uh, baseball brought to the city of Detroit together in 1968 after all those riots in 1967. But um, didn't baseball want to kind of portray that kind of myth? Like, you know, look, here's how we heal the wounds of the country. Look what happened in Detroit. I think so. I mean, I mean, as the years have gone on, certainly. But uh, and you could see the very beginnings of it during the 1968 season. So if you remember, the Tigers lost a pennant on the very last day of the season. And there was actually a riot within Tiger Stadium of people tearing up seats and uh, and people getting thrown to the ground because uh, the Tigers who were expected to win uh, and go on to the World Series or at least tie uh, with the Red Sox uh, and uh, for the pennant and, and play in a, a playoff to to play the Cardinals, you know, just didn't do it. And so during the 1967 season or 68 season rather. You, you start to see uh, glimpses of people uh, uh, putting forth this myth. Uh, guy, uh, guys like the, the broadcaster or George Kell, and then you know, uh, and then after the, the Tigers won the pennant, uh, uh, everyone from uh, Mayor Jerome Cavanaugh to Governor George Romney saying, you know, you've saved the city to, uh, to Tigers management. And then it just get as the years have gone on, it gets completely blown up. It gets uh, mythologized to a point where, uh, you know, so often when after I've written this book, um, I've had largely white uh, Detroiters or people who lived outside of Detroit um, say to me, you know, you know, this team, and usually they're people who haven't read the book, but who say, you know, that that team really brought this city together. And, you know, I, I sort of make the point, it's like, you know, then how to explain, how do you explain that George Wallace, a segregationist uh, candidate, won every uh, single white ward in the city of Detroit during the Democratic primary? And they're kind, they're kind of awestruck. And he said, and response sometimes is usually, well, you know, I was 14 years old and living in Grand Rapids. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't blame those people for wanting to believe it. I wanted to believe it. You know, we want to believe that, you know, sports can sometimes have a bigger effect than it can. But the larger, you know, socioeconomic factors that went into the riot weren't solved by a baseball team. And I think it's kind of unfair um, to put the onus on, um, on on sports to do that. But I and I, I sometimes think, you know, looking back on it, that, that perhaps that was the beginning of the, the mythologizing uh, of, of sports and, and its abilities. Um, and what it could possibly do, you know, for cities, for communities, uh, you know, when I think back to New Orleans after Katrina, 
everyone rooted for the Saints because Katrina, uh, because the Saints are were, were going to uh, you know help New Orleans. Well, they helped them for a night, but it, you know there are deep seated problems with uh, uh, New Orleans uh, economically in, uh, in terms of infrastructure. And you know even uh, look back to this past World Series with with Houston. Uh, at following the hurricane, uh, you know, people saying, well, Houston really needs uh, the Astros alone in the World Series. What Houston needs is great, uh, better infrastructure. <laughs> so, um, and I, I, you know, and when in some ways I felt it kind of sad that, that, that we uh, put this onus on, on sports uh, to do things that it can't possibly achieve. Right. If you'd have if you followed that logic too, I guess everyone would have, would have thought the uh, 2001 Yankees would have been the sentimental favorites to win the World Series. But uh, yeah, and, and uh, I think in the opening p- pages of the book, I, you know, I, I was a reporter at nine eleven. I, I covered it, and I was here when you know the Yankees didn't win the World Series. And I can honestly say that uh, um, it's not that no one cared when they lost, or that you know definitely people weren't root, uh, rooting for them. But there, there was other things going on. <laughs> so. yeah, that's true. Uh, let's go to the baseball teams for a minute here. Talk about the uh, differences between the Cardinals and the Tigers. What what was their strengths and weaknesses, and the, the culture that each team brought to the table? Well, I you know it's it's interesting that the Cardinals were the favorites going into uh, the nineteen sixty eight World Series because um, because you know they had won the World Series the year, the year before. I mean that was a team built on pitching and uh, uh, and speed, really. Um, uh, you know, obviously anchored by Bob Gibson um, as the number one starter, uh, and and uh, sort of backed up by some very competent starters. But you had players like Lou Brock, who was you know, was I think is underestimated as how uh, for his greatness um, as the years have gone on. But also the great Kurt Flood and uh, playing in center field and. But at the same time, they were also an aging team. Uh, Orlando Cepeda's uh, knees were giving way at first base, and Roger Maris in right field wasn't the player he once was. And so, um, um, but still, uh, they were a very efficient, hardworking uh, uh, team and a very smart team. Uh, the Tigers, uh, by contrast, uh, in a year where no one was hitting, uh, this book is called Year of the Pitcher for a reason, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that. And, um, um, as our conversation goes on, but they were a powerful, powerful team and, and really hit. They had a great nucleus of, of hitters go, going from first baseman, uh, uh, Norm Cash to, uh, the left fielder, Willie Horton to Jim Northrop, who, uh, who, uh, played right and center, uh, a tremendous catcher and, and Bill Freehand, uh, you know, uh, at times they said uh, their nickname was socket to them and they really did. They were a really, really good uh, uh, hitting team and a really powerful team. And I think one that was underestimated uh, going into that world series. You know, this um, year of the pitcher, I mean, we have to, Bob Gibson is, was the giant of, of that year. And, and he held a, a great influence in the locker room and he showed a much different personality inside the locker room than he showed to the, his opponents or the fans or the, the media. What, uh, what contrast did you did you find out about him? Well, I mean, so we have this image of Gibson as this angry and you know, quite frankly, uh, because of his, his skin color, this angry black man and uh, uh, and and very mean. 
But if you talk to any of his teammates, any of his teammates, he was beloved and had the greatest sense of humor. Uh, you know, did impersonations of Ray Charles to Willie Mays to anyone and was one of the guys. I mean, the Cardinals had a band and he played in the band and he was just a terrific, terrific teammate. But outside that bubble, uh, he was a different person because you know he wanted to win and he believed that the competition was his enemy and he was going to beat them at all costs. You know, one of the things I discovered in writing the book is that, you know, and then going back to Omaha where I grew up is that, you know, it, 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 it comes from there in a lot of ways and that, you know, he came from a family that protected him that was, that often, you know, was different in the, in the Northern Omaha neighborhoods where they grew up. And, and so that, you know, there was an, uh, uh, a distrust of, uh, uh, of outsiders that continued uh, into his, his playing days. And so, you know, once you got to know him inside that clubhouse, once you were a teammate, you were a brother. Um, even a guy like Tim McCarver, who was raised, you know, in Memphis, the son of a policeman, you know, as he famously says, uh, had uh, never, you know, played against a, a, an African-American player, much less with one. And yet they became um, the best of friends uh, throughout their lives. And so, you know, that contrast of the steely-eyed Gibson versus uh, uh, the, the lovable teammate is one, one of the great surprises I found in the book. And speaking of brothers, I mean, Bob Gibson's brother played a tremendous role in, in his growth and development and his confidence, didn't he? Oh, certainly. I mean, Josh Gibson, uh, I don't think you can say enough about job, uh, Josh Gibson. And I, I sometimes think that maybe there should be a statue of him in Omaha. Uh, uh, well, I mean, you know, I mean, he was a man who had earned a, a master's degree in education and be, and really because of his race, couldn't find a job outside of the meatpacking uh, plants uh, in or Omaha, which was a major industry uh, there at the time. And he really shaped uh, 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 not only Bob, but a whole generation of young black athletes to come out of Omaha, including about basketball players like Bob Boozer and, you know, and uh, 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 football players and um, just, a, just a super array of talent that, that came out of that neighborhood um, that was sort of under his guidance. But really, I mean, his greatest pupil was Bob and who he uh, had come to at a very young age and said, if you want to do this, we're going to do this, essentially. And, uh, and guided him all the way through, um, got him, got him to Creighton where he went to a university, but didn't finish, got him to the Cardinals and, and so on and taught him that personality and that, um, that belief, uh, not only in himself, but, um, and gave him that competitive spirit that, um, that would follow him through his career. I heard you in one interview compared Gibson as the uh, pitching equivalent of Ted Williams. And I thought that was a very interesting comparison because while Gibson may not have been as loud as uh, Williams, he certainly didn't suffer fools either, did he? No. And, you know, it's, it's funny because uh, in, with the passage of years, I think a lot of people remember Ted Williams a lot differently. Uh, we remember the older Todd, Ted Williams, uh, who was, you know, while, you know, still a tough guy, you know, was a pretty open we don't necessarily talk about Ted Williams, the player who was hostile towards the press, was mean as hell towards fans, and 
and that and you know really was dedicated to his craft and in that uh, regard uh, I I don't see very much difference between he and Gibson because you know here was uh, Gibson who you know did not care for to give autographs or uh, and was not close to the fans and you know was friends with very few people in the media and had you know little use for them but you know once uh he was on the field he was on the field and um that's what he believed his job was and 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 he executed it in a way that um i think that no one will ever forget and then we came up to uh danny mclean who was basically like an open book just a sponge wanting all this publicity and attention and and by the way i have i have his uh his album of his organ playing music i found it at a yard sale here in my in my hometown so, so can I ask you the question, do you have the live one um, uh, uh, no. from Las Vegas, or do you have the one with, with uh, him pitching on the cover? <laughs> with him pitching on the cover, and it actually actually has an autograph on it, and I asked a friend of mine who deals in autographs whether it was probably legitimate, he says, well, who would forge it? But, but uh, it's, it's very good elevator music, let's put it that way. <laughs> um, well, talk about McLean, though. How is he different? Well, I mean, I don't think you could find a polar opposite because, you know, and, you know, I mentioned Joe Namath earlier and uh, Denny Denny almost saw the future. He almost was there in terms of seeing, you know, the idea of building this brand for himself that was going to extend his, his life beyond baseball, except he was, you know, perhaps actually he was a step behind. So you know, here was a guy who had lost his father at a very young age. Um, Gibson, you know, never knew his dad. Uh, uh, his dad died before he was born. Um, you know, the son of um, a terrible alcoholic uh, who, uh, you know, really pushed Denny. And, then, and, once he, and once he died, Denny sort of felt that he could do whatever he wanted and did. As long as he won, as long as he succeeded, as long as he was a great pitcher, he could do whatever he wanted. And, and so then he, he comes uh, of age um, um, as a great pitcher and then realizes or thinks he can you know, parlay this into greater fame, which he did, except you know, that greater fame was going to be um, something even greater, which was uh, becoming a professional organ player and you know, making, uh, you know, making uh, millions off that at a time when you know, America was, was you know, I don't know. I don't know when the heyday of the organ uh, album was, but you know, it certainly wasn't in 1968. Um, um, as you know, I, 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 I can't imagine uh, uh, in in the streets of Haight Ashbury or uh, or in college dorm rooms across the country, people uh, were you know t- uh, uh, placing their Denny McLean album next to their Doors album. Right, they they weren't they weren't playing the um, Denny McLean version of White Rabbit. No, they weren't. And you know, you write that he lived life on the edge, and he never never doubted his invincibility. And I guess in some ways, on the mound, that's a strength. But in in life, that proved to be his downfall. Oh yeah, I mean certainly. I mean um, even before his playing days, uh, and uh, you know what happened in 1967 with his. Uh, you know, toe injury has been a speculation of, uh, of a lot of people, uh, to this day, he still think, uh, says he, you know, fell off the couch and it was an unfortunate accident. Uh, obviously people have, have, have uh, said it was uh, related to his association with gamblers, but, you know, 
he was he was a guy who uh, who believed that he came first, and so that you know once his playing days were over, you know I mean he was he was out of baseball by twenty nine, you know he was still a sports figure who was beloved and used that love in in these terrible ways to do terrible things to people uh, to innocent people. Uh, you know he went to jail twice, um, the second time for essentially stealing the four hundred one k pension plan. Uh, of a meatpacking plant that he, you know, had, you know, didn't have to buy. I mean, he, you know, he never had to do these things. And yet he was always looking for the next scheme, always looking for um, the next big thing, you know, to, to, to make him rich. And, um, you know, it was never enough. And, you know, and uh, as a result, you know, he paid for it. He paid for it, you know, by going to prison, he paid for it by losing his, his wife, and then, you know, somehow um, uh, getting her back, he paid for it with his own, you know, uh, reputation, you know, I mean, uh, when people say Denny McLean, you know, lots of people say, you know, 31 wins, but lots of people will say, oh, that's the guy that went to prison. That's the crook. That's, you know, um, that's this guy. And um, it's a shame. Yeah, he was he was baseball's version of Sergeant Bilko. So I can date myself here to say how old I Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, you know, but at the same time, and uh, as you said, you know, I mean, he, you know, he did, he played by his own rules, you know, he flew his own plane, he uh, kept, he kept himself uh, apart from the team. And it, it, in that instance, you know, I, I, I find that contrast between his, Ian Gibson are, uh, pretty striking, because while you have Gibson, uh, and as and from the outside, you, you think, you know, this is a guy that keeps to himself, whereas, you know, he's jovial and, and plays cards and plays in the band. You know, everyone I talked to, uh, uh, you know, basically said, you know, Denny was kind of a loner. You know, he was off to himself and, and you know, both selfishly because he made his own rules, but he, he was just a lonely guy. And uh, I don't know whether that manifested itself in, in the way he acted, but, you know, he certainly wasn't part of a team and didn't, and, um, and people didn't really feel like he was part of uh, part of the team at times. Yeah, and he had a manager that put up with a lot. Um, let's talk about the managers, Mayo Smith and Red Shandienst. I mean, obviously both of them fit their teams rather well. Shandienst always struck me as a very low key guy, and let his uh, let his players you know police themselves and do what they had to do. Is that what you found? Yeah, I think you know. I mean, uh, uh, for those that remember, I mean, he replaced Johnny Keane, who uh, had led the Cardinals to nineteen sixty four. Uh, World Series and uh, left, you know, promptly afterwards um, uh, for the, uh, sort of an ill-fated job at the Yankees, and you know, died very young. Uh, but you know, you know, Shane Deans was a, a Hall of Fame player in his own right, and 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 you know, you know, wasn't much for changing lineups, wasn't much for uh, for for meddling, and and I think. You know, this was a team that was run by the players, and and it manifests itself on the field. And so that, you know, even in Game Seven of the nineteen sixty eight World Series, with uh, with Dow Maxwell not having a single hit in the series, he's still in the lineup. <laughs> so, um, you know, he trust he trusted his guys, and sometimes, and I think in that series to a fault. Um, so. And, you know, it is funny that, uh, you know, because uh, not now, but, you know, over the years, if, as the Cardinals have made managerial changes, 
the interim manager inevitably, inevitably uh, becomes Red Shandy. It's like, you know, we, we have to fire the guy. Who, who do we have to replace him? It's like, well, we can hire Red and Red comes in, <laughs> runs the team for, for a few months and then, you know, they hire the next guy. Um, and uh, I've always found that was pretty funny. He didn't seem to mind. You, no, he doesn't. You, uh, you interviewed 75 different people for the book, including uh, players and writers. Uh, which, which of the players or people in general did you find the most compelling? I mean, there was a lot of obscure names in there too. Uh, just a lot of guys that you wouldn't, that wouldn't jump out at you as major leaguers unless you were really, you know, attuned to that t- type of trivia. Well, I tried to interview everyone, um, you know, on both teams, but then, you know, obviously reached out, um, and, and sometimes it was by, by accident. And the people that I found the most insightful um, were, were the most surprising. Uh, Dick uh, Trezwiski, and I know I, I butchered his last name, was probably one of the best interviews I've ever had uh, with a professional athlete. Um, his insight, his memory, um, you know, his perception of the Detroit team was phenomenal. And, you know, I mean, I think that po- possibly comes from the fact that He'd been in Los Angeles previously and, you know, was Sandy Kovacs' roommate and, um, and understood the culture of L.A. And then, and then comes to Detroit, which is much different, and was really able to, you know, talk about Denny um, uh, in terms, uh, you know, versus Kovac um, and, you know, and how each uh, uh, approached their sport and, and, um, and, and fame. Um, another one who I absolutely adore is Mudcat Grant. Um, anyone who has, has, uh, anyone who has a chance to ever speak with that man for even 15 minutes will come away and your life will be better. Um, this was a man who raised in the segregated South who, um, who's, you know, somehow made it to the major leagues and, you know, had a lot of trouble, um, um, with the Cleveland organization, that he, that he played for, um, at times, but was still, was, uh, was still beloved by the fans and, you know, really by the team itself. And it wasn't really until he came to the twins, um, that he came into his own, um, as a pitcher under Johnny Sane, the pitching coach, he plays a tremendous, uh, uh, part in, in the book. Um, another guy, uh, I, I really enjoyed talking to, um, was Jim Cott. I mean, um, uh, Jim's insight, his, not only into the, the the game itself, which makes him such a great announcer, um, in terms of, of, of describing the mechanics and uh, of pitching, and you know what works and what doesn't work, and 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 what makes you a, a great pitcher, um, and you know, and, and also talking about the pitchers of that era and why they were different, but also talking about you know the racial dynamics of, of different teams and of what it meant to be a player in 1968. Uh, I found uh, incredibly insightful. Um, uh, Jim Longborg was another one of those guys. And so, uh, you know, I mean, it's a reason why you make every phone call. <laughs> and, you know, if you see a name, uh, you, uh, you try and reach out to them because you never know what they have to say. So um, those were some of the people that I really, really enjoyed talking to. Some of the threads uh, that I picked up on in the book, is, like I said, about Johnny Zane and, and George Vexy and Jim Bouton. Um, what, uh, how powerful an influence was Sane to the pitching staffs of the 1960s, and I guess particularly with the Tigers? I mean, he was with the Yankees and the Twins also, but he seemed to really turn the Tigers around. Yeah, you know, it, it comes across the, in the book that how much I love and revere Johnny Sane. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, you start the you book know. off with him. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, it's one of those things when, when you begin the, the writing process of something, 
I could never imagine that not only that he would be a character, but that he, you know, that I would literally begin with him throwing a baseball against a, a, a card table, you know, sometime after world war two. Um, you know, uh, as you said, I mean, uh, you know, I think he's the, you know, possibly the greatest pitching coach of his era, if not all time. And, um, and, you know, had this phenomenal uh, turn with the Yankees where, you know, he uh, helped nurture the careers of Jim Bowden and, uh, and uh, Whitey Ford and, and then goes on to the Twins and helps Jim Cott and Mudcat Grant and gets them in the World Series. And then arrives at the Tigers, you know, tremendous with a tremendously talented staff that just couldn't put it together. And, you know, Sane's great ability was to treat and this sounds cliche, but to treat uh, each individual player as his own man. And he, he was someone that could get through to Denny. I mean, he knew Denny liked uh, uh, and was interested in flying. And he was able to relay to him, you know, his own experiences um, as a, um, uh, in World War II and, and the idea of aerodynamics. And, you know, was able to deal with someone like Mickey Lolich, who was m- uh, much uh, different than, uh, than McLean. And, you know, and kept his pitchers uh, apart from the rest of the team, which, you know, didn't uh, sit well with uh, manager Mayo Smith, but, you know, was incredibly effective. I think one of um, really the the great moments in the 1968 season was um, when Mickey Lolich actually got demoted to the bullpen and was fuming about it. And this is in August. And Sane um, said, look, I think this is good for you. You've been uh, under, you've been stressed all season long, and he was also weighted by all the attention McLean was getting. And I said, "You're going to be you'd be in a position where you're to come in and not think about uh, what's going on." And then Lolich comes back and is not only as uh, you know as strong a pitcher as he was in 1967, but you know ends up winning three games uh, for the Tigers and uh, and upsetting the Cardinals. That's true, and, and of course, as you as you sort of alluded to, um, Sane wasn't the easiest pitching coach to get along if he were the manager. And I guess I, I guess the managers, you know, maybe maybe felt a little bit threatened. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, because I mean, here's a guy that you know, and in an era when position coaches, you know, weren't weren't known very well. I mean, he was known and um, and beloved, and so I mean. You know, the Twins spent a lot of money um, after he left left the Yankees uh, to go get uh, to get, get Sane, and ownership uh, basically said, "We're getting him because we think he's a guy that can lead us to the World Series," and he did. <laughs> so that couldn't have sat <laughs> sat well with, uh, with the rest of the coaching staff. And he also um, was a guy who you know uh, dressed and uh, usually dressed with the players, and and sort of made it clear you know, whose side he was on. And, you know, in Detroit, 1967, even, you know, the reporters would, would come talk to Sane. Um, not so much in 1968, but definitely in 1967, they would come to, uh, to Sane uh, to talk because, um, you know, they weren't really getting much out of uh, the Tigers manager, uh, Mayo Smith. And, you know, that created a lot of resentment. Um, it created a lot of resentment um, uh, towards the end of uh, his tenure in New York. It certainly did in Minnesota, and uh, and then it, and then again it happened in, in Detroit. And so, um, you know, um, for as good as uh, as he was with 
dealing with players and um, and pitchers and uh, and his guys, you know, um, uh, you know the resentment that he he uh, he caused, um, you know, just followed uh, followed him wherever he went. That said, you know, every time he left a team, they weren't as good <laughs> as they were once uh, when when they uh, when he was with them, and so. Um, you know, I mean, I, I talked to his uh, widow, uh, Marianne, and you know, she's frank about it, and went both and and by saying, you know, he never wanted to be a manager. I mean, he was interested in pitching, and he was interested in pitchers; those were his guys. You know, I I, I could never see him in a, a managerial uh, position because uh, you know he cared about one thing, and uh, it's I think it's a real shame that managers um, uh, like Mayo Smith were were jealous of. Um, of, of both the attention and and also the the sort of devotion that um, that, that his staffs uh, had towards yeah. him. Talk about Vexy and Bouton. I mean, Vexy was a was a young reporter, and I guess Bouton was sort of hanging on, as he said in his book, uh, literally by his fingertips by 1968, and it was before he started keeping the diary for Ball Four. Uh, well, I mean, George Vess. I mean, I interviewed a number of sports writers uh, for the book, and. Uh, uh, you know George Vesey uh, 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 among them, and you know Vesey is a guy who uh, uh, came from a an old newspaper uh, family in New York, and and you know really rose the ranks very quickly. Um, you know first at uh, Newsday, and then at the New York Times, and really, and the, um, for those who don't remember, you know after he left sports, he went on to cover the Vatican. You know he uh, uh, wrote Coal Miner's Daughter. He he did a lot of things, and then before he, you know, he ended up returning to sports. But you know, he he was a very intelligent, thoughtful guy who was starting to question what it meant to be a sports writer in the midst of uh, uh, the 1960s, and what it meant to be a sports writer in 1968. And so his insight, and you know, I don't want to say angst, you know, really sort of stuck with me. You know, I, I never intended him to uh, again. To be a, a you know a, a central figure in this book, but he is because I mean here you had somebody whose business was you know covering these games and and uh, and being involved in, in baseball, but also uh, someone who uh, understood um, racial dynamics and and how and and would often go to um, the African American players and 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 speak with them, and so. Um, you know, he was just a, a very fascinated guy and a very conflicted guy about, you know, what he was doing. And I found, you know, that inner conflict, um, that he felt, um, um, fascinating and, and it really sort of spoke to the, you know, who he was because, I mean, he wasn't someone that was, um, was that just went along and, and didn't question, you know, the, the, what was going on in the greater world. I mean, he, he was always cognizant of it and, um, and it sort of gave me a glimpse into, um, you know, you know what it must have been like to, um, to you know, cover the game uh, during that era. And then you have a Jim Bowden, as who, like you said, I mean, this is before Ball Four. Um, and you know, I, I think of all athletes, um, uh, you know, well, at least at least of all ball players, he was the one that was most uh, socially uh, outspoken. You know, one of the things that I wanted to find, wanted to find in the book, and, and that's, that's an important point, and I think it's a good lesson for 
for anyone going into like a large project, I mean, you want to find stuff, right? And sometimes that's not the truth. I mean, it didn't hold for the mythology of Detroit. And it certainly didn't hold uh, true for um, what I expected to find out of uh, ball players because, you know, at a time when sports was, you know, super politicized with uh, people like Kareem, well, then Lou Alcindor, uh, later Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Jim Brown and Bill Russell speaking out on, on social issues, he found baseball players largely silent. The one exception, strangely, is Jim Bowden, um, who, you know, um, uh, uh, who, you know, was forever his own man and, uh, and really uh, exhibited a conscience in, in sort of uh, uh, talking about stuff and, uh, and, and a bigger thing, uh, the, the things at, at play, and especially with the proposed Olympic boycott um, uh, in 1968. And so um, I think it speaks to his intelligence. I think it speaks to, um, um, you know, his uh, understanding of uh, that there was that there was a world uh, beyond the game. That said, he was he was still trying to uh, figure out a knuckleball to uh, keep himself in the, in the sport. So. That's true. And you also spoke with Mike Marshall, who would also play a big role in Ball Four too. Yeah, I did. Um, and and you know, anyone who talks to Mike Marshall about the mechanics of pitching and um, uh, and uh, about what it does to someone's arm and um, and what they used to and how tra- pitchers used to be treated. Um, comes away with a, a much deeper understanding uh, of the game. Um, uh, Marshall was, uh, you know, uh, has a, a PhD in I think sports physiology, uh, um, but um, and he was he's able to describe to me, you know, um, not only talking about Sane and, and his theories and and um, how you know it wasn't you know out of thin air like. Um, that um, he gave sort of scientific backing to, <laughs> to John Sain's, you know, ideas of motion and um, and the idea of rotation and and so on. But uh, but you know, you have to remember by 1968, Denny McLean is basically addicted to cortisone, and it and and uh, and Marshall and I talked at length about you know what the use of that drug in the 1960s did to players arms and especially with with McLean because you know I mean as mu- as much as people want to say oh he was kooky he was this he was that he was a tough guy and he pitched through a lot of pain and in order to get through that pain he was taking cortisone which was which was you know inevitably you know shortened his career I mean I would have liked to have seen Denny McLean under given proper medical uh treatment um um, at a young age and, and to see how that career would have, uh, would have, uh, um, panned out because, uh, like I said, he was done by the age of 29 and had nothing. And, um, and yet, you know, um, here you have him in 1968. I mean, you know, quote unquote, selfishly, you know, trying to get to win 30 games and, and get $100,000, um, as a, as next contract, which he didn't, but, but also, you know, I mean, you know, pitching on two days rest and, and continuing to, t- to taking these shots. And, um, you know, um, uh, I, th- I think even Mike Marshall, Marshall's case uh, in 1967, when, you know, he was with the Tigers uh, in camp and sort of looking around at, at um, everyone around him and 
um, and then also seeing the, the use of cortisone and then but even by then understanding the, uh, the effect it was having on his, his teammates I think uh, I don't know it was it was a real insight and in, in talking to him definitely so and and McLean was going to was supposed to be the one of the big stories of the 68 World Series but I mean to me the the big move happened just before when when Mayo Smith moved Mickey Stanley into shortstop so he could get Al Kalen in the in the, in the lineup and in, in, in the outfield it was a heck of a gamble yeah and it's something that will never happen again I mean yeah uh, uh I mean, you will never see. I mean, one can argue that center field and shortstop are the you know uh, outside of you know the, the pitcher catcher uh, are the, the two most uh, uh, difficult positions uh, um, to to play on a uh, on on the field. And yet he moves his center fielder to shortstop. Um, and you know, Al Kaline by that uh, by that year was in his sixteenth year, I believe, and had uh, gone to Smith and said, "Look." And had been hurt for most of the year. They had won that pennant without him, and said, "Look, you know, the kids have to play. Like I, you know, I'd like to get in if you can, in some way, uh, somehow, get me in. You know, I appreciate it, but you know." And uh, Smith, to his credit, and I will say, and I'll go out on a limb and say, Smith was not the brightest bulb in the entire world, and uh, uh, said, "I need you in the lineup," uh, and uh, and uh, and. And toyed and actually, uh, you know, and talked about his players. Like, what would it be like to move Stanley, who is, you know, basically the best athlete on the the team, to shortstop so that Kaline could get back into the outfield? And I think universally, for everyone I talked to, and maybe this is, you know, because of hindsight, they said, yeah, do it. Because, you know, if anyone can do it, it's Mickey Stanley. And so, you'll never see that move again, that kind of move again. And, uh, you know, he had a a kind of rough start in Baltimore and then, uh, quickly adapted the position and K-Line had a really great world series. And, you know, part of me thinks that looks back to 1964 when Mayo Smith was scouting for the Yankees, uh, um, and was scouting, uh, uh, Gibson. And I think that, you know, that sort of stuck in his mind that he needed, Al Kaline in that lineup to face uh, to face Bob Gibson. Yeah, of course. Now with the DH, it would have been a moot point. Yeah, it would have been totally moot. Right. Um, your book subtitle refers to the um, the end of baseball's golden age, and uh, was was nineteen sixties baseball really golden? What era was actually coming to an end? Well, you know, I think it's up up for debate about. I mean, um, uh, you know what a particular golden age is. I mean, um, a lot of people can argue, uh, um, basically, you know, the time that when you were 13, that's when baseball was at its best. That's when, you know, um, uh, you know, that was, you know, the true golden age. Um, the reason I, I say, I mean, I think it was use the term golden age is sort of a catch all. Um, it, it was the golden, the end of the golden age of pitching, um, um, uh, um, that had uh, come about as a result of the rule changes following Roger Maris and uh, uh, Mickey Mantle's great 1961 season. It was also um, you saw the, uh, a golden age, the end of a golden age of um, you saw uh, uh, people's uh, careers winding down. Um, you know, Mickey Mantle, who had defined baseball for you know a generation. I mean, that was it for him. I mean. Uh, uh, he ends up hitting his uh, final home run, um, and, uh, uh, or rather his, his, his second to last home run, 
uh, in Tiger Stadium um, against uh, uh, Denny McLean, who essentially, you know, told him, where do you want it? And, you know, gave him a gift. And, and so you, you see the end, and, and then you saw the end of Maris. And I think, you know, with, with that and that passing and, and with players who I didn't even, uh, who, I, who I mentioned in passing in the book, uh, you know, declining Willie Mays and, and so on and so forth, you know, a certain era was passing. Um, and, um, and, you know, and as I alluded to earlier, you know, baseball standing in the national, as the national game was going to quickly end. Um, I mean, it ended in, in, in January of 1969. And so this was one last glimpse into, you know, its place is truly, um, um, uh, the national pastime, um, you know, um, you know, before Monday night football, before, uh, you know, the, the, the rise of the NBA and, and so, and so here you have one last glimpse into, you know, what baseball was. Um, and, uh, and so I think that's what I refer to as, as the golden age. And it was also the end of the, uh, before the end, the beginning of divisional play too, because that was certainly drew a line. Yeah. And, you know, and so in 1969, you have the advent of, of, uh, uh, um, the playoff system, um, which I think, uh, was good for baseball. <laughs> so, um, but, but it definitely, it definitely marked, you know, uh, the idea of the best teams in both leagues making it to the world series. That was it. And, and, you know, that was, uh, and, you know, today it's like, well, you know, we're hoping for the best teams to, to make it, but, you know, I mean, within a seven game series, within a five game series, who knows what's going to happen. And so, um, um, but here you, you really did have, uh, one last glimpse of what, it, what a season would look like if you had the, the two best teams, uh, square off against one another. And, um, you know, with that final out in 1968 uh, world series that came to a close. True. And you did some tremendous research on this book. Uh, what did you, what was the most challenging part and what did you learn that you didn't know before about the season? Well, I mean, there were a lot of challenges. I mean, number one, um, uh, Bob Gibson didn't talk to me, <laughs> um, which uh, leads to um, uh, um, uh, an ending that I uh, of the of the very last page of the book that I I, I couldn't uh, couldn't have expected. Um, it was rather bittersweet, actually. Yeah, no, it was. And in some ways, it's the perfect ending. And in some ways, I, it just like it. Uh, I, I I really wish he had talked to me. And so, um, but um, you know. There were a tremendous, I, I guess, you know, the thing that surprised me the most um, was that distance that baseball um, uh, had a bit, uh, between itself and, and America. Um, you know, in, and, you know, I'm going to use the parlance of, of Ken Burns here, but, you know, in a sport that had led the way uh, so often in America and in terms of, you know, uh, Jackie Robinson uh, entry in, in, into baseball and, uh, and, and, you know, at, at times where baseball was, um, you know, progressive, um, um, here you had uh, a sport that, you know, had fallen behind and I, I just didn't, uh, you know, I think part of me understood it. I just didn't realize, you know, how deep that was, um, that was, uh, in play there. Um, the other thing that surprised me, I think was, uh, sort of, I mean, when we think about the players movement and the rise of free agency, 
I think sometimes uh, we're tempted just to think of um, number one, only Kurt Flood's um, lawsuit and his fight for free agency, but also um, you know the the, the decision to uh, to, to allow free agency into baseball and, and sort of the chaos that, that came in the 1970s, um, if you want to call it chaos. But, but I, I, I was surprised by, you know, Marvin Miller enters the game in 1966. And then by 1968, how the attitudes of the players had changed, um, you know, because, I mean, one of the things, you know, you're tempted to believe it's like, is that, you know, oh, the players just, you know, just went along and, and were fine. And, you know, really by 1968, they're not fine. I mean, Marvin Miller had really galvanized this group, you know, in the course of two years uh, to a point where they were going to follow him a- a- anywhere. And that, you know, anyone that was surprised about uh, that free agency came about in the 1970s or that, you know, that players were ex- were exerting their rights never before, um, um, you know, especially during the 1972 strike, you know, wasn't really paying attention. I mean, these were players who were begin- were really, really, really understanding that these were that they were indentured servants, and that um, and 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 so the so that the effect that Marvin had, and you know, I I am continually continually angered that he there is not a plaque. Uh, of, of Marvin Miller and baseball's Hall of Fame because I don't think uh, you know one of the most central figures in the history of the sport isn't recognized uh, um, you know in those in those halls, but um, but you know how quickly um, they had taken to him and how uh, willing they were uh, uh, and, and how much uh, not necessarily power but how much. He had endowed that that uh, sense of self uh, w- within them, and their belief that you know that uh, uh, that the owners didn't have their best interests at heart, and you know that you could see the rise even by then. You know, it wasn't you know whatever whatever what happened you know afterwards with free agency with all this you know didn't come overnight. And um, I was surprised by 1968 the, the about the about what you saw and, and the signs and the progress that have been made. Yeah, I certainly agree with you on the Marvin Miller question about him not being in Cooperstown. It's a travesty. Um, here's the uh, part of the interview where I ask you what I missed. Is there anything that uh, you'd like to add about the book that I haven't touched on? Uh, Don Drysdale, um, the other pitchers, anything like that? Well, yeah. I mean, it is called the year of the pitcher because um, uh, you know we'll never see a year um, like that again. Um, in terms of the statistics, in terms of the, the outright dominance that pitchers had, um, you know, Don Drysdale uh, occupied his, his own chapter in the book. Um, for you know, I mean, um, this was the year where he pitched fifty-eight and, and two-thirds uh, scoreless innings, and um, um, not only because of, of his great achievement, but I think it, in some ways, um, uh, he was what sort of what. Denny aspired to be, um, that, that he was the movie star athlete, you know, uh, he was the one with the Rose Bowl queen wife and, and, and the young child with her own, uh, um, uh, deal, uh, to, to produce, uh, uh, TV, um, and, um, and just the glamour that, that Drysdale still had. And, you know, uh, and, and, 
you know, you know, thinking about Drysdale's uh, streak uh, and and what how remarkable it was, and the fact that it's it's it stood for so long until Oral Hershiser uh, broke it in 1988. Um, um, but you know, and I guess in terms of you know other things that um, in terms of, of what to think about in terms of the book and what I was was and and going back to the idea of the outside world. Um, you know, there, there are two things I think that stand out, you know, first of all, uh, the King assassination, which, um, happened, um, and, uh, you know, delayed the start of the season, but also then you have, uh, uh, the assassination of Kennedy, uh, uh, Robert Kennedy, um, in June and was really, again, going back to the idea of Marvin Miller, uh, was really, I think, a, a, a pivotal point in the in the form and the power of the players' union, because I mean, here was a situation where owners wanted the players to play, and um, they didn't. And you know, some teams were forced to play, some teams didn't, um, and you know, um, and were threatened with consequences. And uh, you know, that you know, you know, touchstone moment um, that you know still rings with us today. Um, it, you know, it, its effect on baseball and the future of the game, um, to me, um, uh, just sort of, um, I, I think is one of the most important, uh, uh points in the book and most important moments sure. in the book. Well, this is, you know, I could talk another hour with you, but we can't do that. It's been very interesting and I know your time is valuable. Um, what's your next project? Are you working on anything right now? Uh, if you have an idea, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny Sane. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe building a monument to Johnny Sane in my backyard. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we've been talking with uh, Sridhar Papu, who's the author of uh, The Year of the Pitcher, Bob Gibson, Denny McLean, and the End of Baseball's Golden Age. It's really been a pleasure having you on the show today. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the New Books and Sports Podcast. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and thank you for joining us. Until next time... Remember, the game is what matters.